This podcast is brought to you by Australia's LGBTQIA plus community media organisation, Joy. Keep Joy on air by becoming a member, a subscriber or donate. Head to joy.org.au. Joy, a diverse sound for a diverse community. You're listening to A Little Pot of Joy, the podcast program. Welcome. This is A Little Pot of Joy, the podcast show. I'm Andrea, and I'm joined by my very special co-host, Alice. Our community is made up of so many amazing and diverse groups of people, as are the programs on Joy 94.9. There is something for everyone. A little pot of joy is where we highlight just some of these amazing programs. We are opening the evening with a podcast from the Queer Community Network News Q&N. Q&N is presented by Jacob, Matthew, Tanya and Adam. Mm, News and information for the lesbian, gay, bisexual, trans and intersex communities of Australia and the world. And this week they're celebrating 300 editions. This is A Little Pot of Joy, the podcast program. Made in Melbourne for Australia and the world. This is the Joy 94.9 GLBTIQ News Roundup. A weekly update of what's been happening in the gay, lesbian, bisexual, trans and intersex communities. Hello and welcome to this, the 300th edition of QNN. I'm Adam Samuel. And I'm Jacob Holman. We begin this week with more on the push within Labor to scrap the conscience vote on marriage. Opposition leader Bill Shorten has put himself at odds with his deputy. He says it's up to members to persuade opponents to support the party's policy. The issue has split the Labor front bench. Chris Bowen declared his support for gay marriage this week, but says he wants to keep the conscience vote. So too does David Feeney. I don't think the challenge is for uh, Labor to engage in coercing people to support this legislation. I think the challenge is for supporters of marriage equality, and I'm one of those, to actually engage in the debate and persuade the unpersuaded. But Jenny Macklin disagrees. I do think that uh, marriage equality should be delivered in Australia. That's the first principle position. Should people be treated equally? Yes, I think they should. Catholic right-wing power broker Joda Bruin says Plibersek has used her time as acting leader to rally supporters. It is very noticeable that she did not say this while she was simply the deputy leader, but I simply do not think it's going to succeed. Liberal Senator Dean Smith last week accused Plibersek of wrecking the party's progress towards a Liberal conscience vote, an accusation she's rejected. It's actually been Labor policy since 2011, since our national conference, uh, to have a conscience vote. There's been no movement from the Liberal Party in that whole time to move away from their position, which is Tony Abbott's position, which is no to marriage equality. After decades of debate, it's all come down to the nine justices of the US Supreme Court as it hears arguments on whether gay marriage is a constitutionally protected civil right. Lawyers for both sides began their arguments last week in the case Obergefell versus Hodges, a lawsuit consolidating challenges to gay marriage bans in Kentucky, Michigan, Ohio and Tennessee. Justice Anthony Kennedy, widely seen as the pivotal fifth vote needed for a nationwide solution appeared cautious. But that, that assumes that same-sex couples uh, could not have the more noble purpose, and that's the whole point. This definition has been with us for millennia. 
And it, it, it's very difficult for the court to say, oh, well, we, 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 know, we know better. Opponents of gay marriage were boosted by remarks from Chief Justice John Roberts. If you prevail here, there will be no more debate. I mean, closing the debate can close minds. People feel very differently about something if they have a chance to vote on it than if it's imposed on them by, by the courts. Justice Eleanor Kagan, meanwhile, took aim at the argument that gay couples shouldn't marry because they can't procreate. Suppose that there's a state with a very procreation-centered view of marriage of the kind that you're talking about. So when people come in and ask for a marriage license, they just ask a simple question, do you want children? And if the answer is no, the state says no marriage license for you. Would that be constitutional? The court will hand down a decision this June. With home testing kits for HIV going on sale in the United Kingdom this week, health groups have warned Australia's lagging behind the rest of the world. With that story, here's Alastair Kingston. The sale of the BioSure kit in England, Wales and Scotland means both British and American consumers now have access to home testing, which can give an indicative HIV result in just 15 minutes. The Victorian AIDS Council's Simon Ruth has told Star Observer, Australia's been too slow to give green light to rapid testing, including home kits. While home test kits can be sold in Australia, no manufacturer is applied to sell them, with the VAC saying making HIV testing convenient and accessible improves outcomes in prevention and treatment. For QNN, this is Alastair Kingston. To Ireland now, where the campaign for a yes vote in the country's gay marriage referendum this month is worried about voter complacency. Only 55% of young voters in the Republic say they intend to cast a ballot on May 22nd, despite polling showing 90% of those aged 18 to 35 support gay marriage. Meanwhile, the star of the comedy Mrs. Brown's Boys is backing the campaign. Ireland's mammy-in-chief made the call in a surprisingly touching video that's already racked up 3 million views online. Changing the law isn't easy. Changing attitudes is even harder. Oh, I know just some of you think it's not right. Well, all I can tell you from my experience is that I can't describe the joy I feel to see my son Rory having the same opportunity for happiness as everybody else's son. And that's all I ask for him, the opportunity. And a Republican lawmaker in North Dakota has learned the hard way not to vote against gay rights if you're going to send dick pics on Grindr. Randy Boning was outed by a 21-year-old user who called out the legislator for voting against giving legal protections for gays and lesbians in the state. And now here's Tanya Lewis with QNN Sport. South Sydney NRL star Isaac Luke has been fined $10,000 for using a homophobic slur on social media earlier this month. The Rabbitohs player has had $5,000 of his fine suspended and will have to undergo an education program for calling Canterbury fans poofters on Instagram. An NRL spokesman says education is the most important factor when it comes to vilification matters. And that's all from QNN for another week. I'm Jacob Holman. And I'm Adam Samuel. Thanks to the team at QNN. That was the Joy 94.9 GLBTIQ News Roundup. To hear this update again, you can subscribe to the QNN podcast, available at joy.org.au slash QNN. Or you can follow QNN on Twitter at QNN Australia. At QNN Australia. You're listening to A Little Pot of Joy on Joy 94.9 with Alice and Andrea. Up now as a tribute to the passing of Errol Brown, frontman of the British soul band Hot Chocolate. Hot Chocolate are known for their uh, 1975 hit song, You Sexy Thing. Errol passed away last week of liver cancer, age 71. Up now, You Sexy Thing, Hot Chocolate. Joy. From last week's Absolutely Everybody, Amy, Jody, and Andrea speak with Living Positive's Bureau Coordinator, Max Niggle. Max gives us an insight into what it's like to live with HIV, the changing face of controlling the virus, the need to control the spread of the virus before it becomes an epidemic. 
If you can't listen to the show live, download the podcast from the Joy website, joy.org.au or the iTunes store. You're listening to A Little Pot of Joy, the podcast program. Absolutely, everybody. You're on Joy 94.9. I'm Jodie, and you're with Amy and Andrea today on the show. We we are coming up in July. It's actually 12 months since the International AIDS Conference, which happened here in Melbourne last year. Uh, on Sunday, the 17th of May, uh, there is, of course, the International AIDS Candlelight Memorial, uh, which is, uh, again, to, to raise awareness around... Um, people living with HIV and in today we have in the studio Max Niggle from Living Positive Victoria. How are you Max? Very well and thank you for inviting me in today. It's our pleasure. Thanks for coming in. So 12 months ago um, was the, the conference or coming up to, it's a couple mm-hmm. of months off that, but it was quite a momentous occasion for Melbourne to have uh, such, a, you know, a, a big contingent of people coming from around the world for that conference. Uh, you were obviously there. What impact has the conference or what were the ramifications from having the conference in Melbourne? Have you seen roll out from, from last year? I think one of the biggest um, uh, things that came out of it was the uh, uh, joint declaration by the uh, federal and state health ministers around the goals that we seek to achieve, and that is to stop HIV infections, to stop um, for the diagnosis of AIDS, but also to challenge stigma and discrimination. So not only that, it, it, the conference really highlighted to, to Melburnians and to Australians that HIV is still here. You know, it's, it's not just buried in the background as if no one needs to worry about it. And increasingly, we are seeing more heterosexual transmissions here in Australia, especially in far north Queensland and in WA, mm. partly based upon the fly and fly out uh, mining booms and also the uh, people's propensity to go off to, you know, Southeast Asia and other countries mm. where HIV is far more prevalent. Mm. So there's 27,500 people living with HIV in Australia. Approximately, yes. Approximately. I think it's really important to differentiate again, uh, as we were discussing before, is that there's not many occurrences of AIDS in Australia anymore. It's really the HIV uh, virus which people are living with and and is is largely controlled these days. Can you talk a bit a little bit about the difference there? Yeah, so HIV is um, obviously what people do contract uh, if if they come in contact with HIV from another partner. Uh, the most important point to make here is that uh, with the medications that are now available, people living with HIV are highly unlikely to be able to transmit the virus in any whether it's heterosexual or, or homosexual sex. Uh, and that, of course, is a, a really powerful message that uh, we are not, to use a stigmatising word, infectious. Mm. Um, and leading on from that, people think that HIV equals AIDS equals death in many cases because there's not a lot of education out there. So it, it, it makes uh, us... Um, a little bit anxious at times that we call people living with AIDS because we're not living with AIDS. We're living with a virus and that virus is extremely well managed if you are under good medical care and taking the treatments. Uh, we were talking about the stigma around people living with HIV. Now, you yourself have lived with HIV for 30 years, I believe. That's correct, yes. So, yeah, that's quite a lifetime of experience for you. Can we talk a little bit about when, when you were first diagnosed and how that kind of played out for you? 
That's a long story, it's, so I'll try to be... Yes, uh, abbreviate, but yeah. <laughs> you know, going back 30 years. Um, it would have been a very different time, though, then. Um, at that time, it was very much a lot about fear because there are very few treatments, if at all. Uh, I um, was uh, tested for HIV in 1987, and I told my doctor I did not want to know the result because there was just nothing that could be done. Mm. And 10 months later, I came down with an AIDS-defining illness. So that was the wake-up call that I really had to start to engage and involve myself in uh, understanding HIV as much as I could. Back then, many of us uh, worked um, uh, in a very unique way with our doctors who were incredibly passionate and caring. And often we knew more about treatments um, and the side effects. And we were raising side effects, these awful side effects that we were experiencing back then. So I, all I could say is that every time I went to uh, Fairfield Hospital at the time, that it was this sense of foreboding or, or dread, you know, what's going to happen next? Will I survive the next month? And mm. it sounds dramatic now from you know, a perspective of today. Mm. But, you know, when people that you see one week you saw them at Fairfield Hospital and the next week they're not there, mm. they're dead. How long into that did the... Did the I guess the, the, the circumstances change in terms of uh, medications into your journey. Yeah, so in 1988, when I came down with um, an AIDS-defining illness, I was immediately put on to AZT, which was the only drug available at the time. Mm. Uh, and, you know, we were just grasping at straws, anything that we could get uh, in the way of medication and support uh, to try to stay alive was, was crucial. So in that um, long journey of rather ineffective treatments, suddenly in 95 and 96, we got the new era of drugs and we started to see this massive decline in people dying mm. and that was all about their immune systems recovering. From that time, the medications have improved absolutely out of sight and side effects are pretty minimal for most people. Mm. So... You know, it's almost like every five years we say, oh, wow, this next lot of meds are fantastic. Mm. Um, and increasingly so, I don't even know that I'm taking them anymore. Yeah, that's great. So what were some of the initial side effects? Oh. <laughs> I mean, without going to... It's, yeah. it's a good question because often um, I actually had this conversation with a 12-year-old the other day who we were talking about um, cancer and, you know, what where do you draw the line between, you know, the the uh, side effects from the drugs or what mm. are the side effects of the illness? Yeah. Mm. Look, I think all of us want to keep living and mm. so we put up with side effects. That's that's the first message. The, but the side effects are varied from gastrointestinal upsets, you know, like mm. shocking diarrhoea to the point not being able to, just the smell of food would make mm. you nauseous, headaches, um, muscle aches, um, losing um, peripheral um, fat, from mm. your limbs mm. um, was one thing that we noticed very early on and the doctors were saying, oh, no, this couldn't be happening, but uh, the reality was, you know, our backsides and our arms were all suddenly um, decreasing. Yeah. So uh, the thing is that you just couldn't maintain weight, but um, no matter what you did, so we were force-fed nutritional supplements yeah. and things like that. So that's quite a horrific journey. Andrew, you were just talking about some of the broader facts about HIV that people need to be aware about. I think I was so surprised about the prevalence of uh, where AIDS is actually starting to turn up now. And you mentioned Northern Australia. And I didn't actually really realise what you meant by that. And also the fly-in, fly-out crews working in Western Australia and, and the northern part of Australia as well. And I was just wondering if you could sort of touch on a little bit more detail there. Sure. 
well, first of all, uh, new, uh, Papua New Guinea is our nearest neighbour and there's a lot of uh, people migrating across the Torres Strait into far north Queensland. But it's not just about Papua New Guineans. They're actually coming here sometimes for treatment because they can't access it at home. But more importantly, we're finding in, in Western Australia and far north Queensland that the diagnosis of heterosexual men in particular is increasing at quite a rate. And in fact, uh, you know, Western Australian AIDS Council have really had to refocus their energy on educating mining communities about going off to travel destinations where HIV may be more prevalent. Is the government doing anything towards bringing awareness towards those particular areas or is it just something that's just happening? Uh, the government uh, funds various agencies such as Living Positive Victoria, such as Western Australian AIDS Council and state governments also chip in funding. So it is up to the non-government organisations to do this education in the communities and yes, they are doing this education. But it's something that we're not hearing about down here in the southern states. No, because uh, invariably, uh, you know, the diagnosis of heterosexuals here in Victoria is quite low, uh, less than 20%. Uh, however, um, agencies such as Positive Women and Straight Arrows, uh, heterosexual support agencies, do a lot of education in the community, as does the Multicultural Health Support Service. My son, he was working fly in, fly out for about four years, mm -hmm. and he certainly didn't come across anything like that or any information about it. But then again, he was really flying in, flying back home to a family. Mm. But I imagine there's a bit more to that particular side of it that's causing the issues. I think because there is a lot of money in the mining gas boom for employees is that they have the ability to travel more, but they're not necessarily aware of the risks of HIV in major travel destinations. So it's not actually uh, something that's an issue within the mining community with the fly-in, fly-out, but it's what happens post. Correct. So it's not within the mining community, right. It, it is about people flying out off to travel destinations. So what are some of the points that people get wrong about HIV? Ah, good question. Uh, the point that most, uh, many Australians get wrong is that HIV is not their business. But HIV is everybody's business, and we only have to look at how the global epidemic of HIV and AIDS is, is progressing, and that is a heterosexually driven epidemic. And it is, you know, for example, in the US, it's affecting Hispanic and, and black American women and children more so. Um, it, it all comes back to people thinking, oh, HIV doesn't worry me. And in Australia, unfortunately, the myth is... It's confined to gay or men who have sex with men. Mm. And thereby people just put up their hands, I'm not one of them, I don't really care. Now I think when you, if you're in a hedonistic environment where there's alcohol involved and you're partying, you know, and human beings by nature like risk. We really, we really want people to understand that you know, safer sex is one of the best ways of protecting yourself against STI and also against HIV. And to get that message across is, is sometimes difficult because people are just not wanting to know. Fantastic. Now, just quickly, I know we're running out of time, but 17th of May? Sunday, the 17th of May, International AIDS Candlelight Memorial held at the City Square starting at 5pm. It's for one hour. We've got amazing performances by the Low Res Male Choir. We have keynote speakers, Dr Alison um, Campbell from the Victorian College of the Arts and two of our fabulous HIV positive speakers. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Max. It's been lovely having you on the show. My pleasure. Joy 94.9. You're on Joy 94.9 and this is a little part of Joy with Andrea and Alice. Up next, Sports Bag. 
Women's Football Centenary. This year marks the centenary of women's AFL football. The first ever women's AFL match was recorded being played 100 years ago in 1915. The AFL women's draft was held early last week, where 34 of the best female players from around the country were selected for both teams, after six players on each side were retained from last year. Last week on Sports Bag, Doug and Mel were able to chat with one of Melbourne Football Club's uh, female stars, Ellie Blackburn, about women's footy and this year's Test Series. If you can't listen to those shows live, download the podcast from Joy website, www.joy.org.au or the iTunes store. This is A Little Pot of Joy, the podcast program. Now, Monday night, the, uh, the 2015 AFL Women's Draft uh, was held. Of course, 34 women given the opportunity to play for either the Western Bulldogs or the Melbourne Football Clubs this year. Not one, but two women's AFL exhibition matches. Yes, they are on um, Sunday, 24th of May. At MPG. the MCJ. Yes, and Sunday, August 16 at Etihad Stadium. Now, I won't be here in August, but I, I'd be here in May, so interesting. Um, I, I also- saw the first one mm-hmm. a couple of years ago at the MCJ, not the second one, not, not last year's one at Etihad. Yeah, yeah. I noticed also the coaches were Michelle Cowan for the Melbourne Demons and Craig Starshevich for the Western Well, Michelle, Michelle's been the uh, coach of the Melbourne side for the last few years. Yeah, and Craig Starshevich, former uh, player for Brisbane and somewhere else. Yes. And also cousin of my mate Troy. Oh, there G'day, you go. G'day, Troy, if you're listening. There you go. Fantastic. Of course, a number of the uh, Victorian Women's Footy League players impressing in the recent draft selection game. Yep. And uh, Monday night, a few of them joined the eight VWFL players that have been retained for the exhibition games to be played on, as you say, May 24th. Fourth and August the 16th. And uh, one of the stars of uh, the Victorian Women's Footy League, and of course uh, a star of the Melbourne Football League women's side, she's been on the Melbourne side for the last couple of years, is Ellie Blackburn. Evening, Ellie. G'day. How Thanks for coming in. Your third year with the Melbourne women's side? Yes, it is my third year. So. Were you surprised you weren't retained by the uh, by the Ds? Uh, no, you know, it just happens, and I guess, you know, a bit shattered to be delisted, but I guess happy to be back on board again. See, delisted works well with the Ds, but if you're at the, if the Bulldogs and get delisted, it's something so different. You were delisted, but then they re-recruited you. Yeah, so the way the system works, they keep uh, six players for each team. Right. And then, so the girls that do get delisted are allowed to reapply for the draft. Right. And, and hopefully get picked up again. And so depending do- on the calibre, if you're still in the top, say, 22, they'll want you back. But if there's all these other girls that come along that are better than you, they don't want you. Is that right? Yeah, pretty much. So yeah. it just opens the gates for new players to come in and mm-hmm. have a shot, I guess. Yeah, and you could have got picked up by the Bulldogs, but you didn't. You got re-picked up by the Demons. Yeah, that's true. So it could have gone either way, but yeah, definitely happy to be back at Melbourne. How do, <laughs> how, do the, how do the clubs work out who they retain and who they don't? I guess it comes down to whatever the coaches really want. So Well, well you were draft pick number six and you were the third Melbourne Demon pick, so they really wanted you. Oh, <laughs> they did. Makes me feel welcome. No, that's right. They wanted you. <laughs> you didn't miss out, and I'm sure some of your mates did. Yeah, it was a bit um, gutted for me to see a couple of my mates um, not be retained mm. and um, not get picked up again. So uh, stuff like that. It's a bit of tough love. But, um, oh, so there's yeah. a few players that have played in the last couple of years that are not on the list to play this year. That's right. Yeah, so some girls just obviously haven't got what it takes at the moment to get back on, I guess. <laughs> oh, that's, nice. that's That's tough, tough love. Right. Ellie, Ellie's tough friends out there, she's talking about you. So there but you Ellie, Ellie, the whole idea is the coach wants the team that she thinks they'll be the one for this year with new players and old players and some returning players. But you're still mates with those other ones that are 
Elisa, but you've got new friends now, new oh, teammates. Exactly because right. Because you've got a bond and play as a team, so you've now got new mates. Yeah, that's it. Did you know any of the girls before, the ones that got picked up? In- yeah, so I guess women's footy in general. Um, I think we play against a lot of the girls in, in club footy and mm-hmm. in state footy. Mm-hmm. So you do get to know one another pretty well. So mm-hmm. it is a, a small world in the women's football community. Okay, so that's good. Now, which uh, which club in the VWFL do you play with? Uh, Melbourne University. Melbourne yeah. University, lovely. And, of course, uh, Emma Carney uh, is on the uh, she's, she's on the Melbourne list, is she? No, she, no she's on the Bulldogs list. Yeah, she's a doggie. She um, okay. got retained from last year as well. There you go. Of course, uh, six, all six of the Bulldogs retained players from the Victorian Women's Football League. Yeah. Um, and Falcon plays Astor O'Connor, who's the captain of the dog side. Uh, Kate Brent, Katie Brennan. Uh, Darcy Veschio as well. Uh, St Kilda's competition competition leading goal kicker Moana Hope and uh, Diamond Creek's Stephanie Chiocchi and uh, Melbourne Uni player Emma, Emma Carney as well. Uh, Daisy Pierce, who's the the reigning Premier Division Helen Lambert medalist and Darabin Falcons Premiership captain, uh, retained by the Melbourne Footy Club. We've spoken to Daisy before. We have indeed, and of course along with her Premiership teammate Melissa Hickey as well. Now it's a very exciting time for women's football, um, it Ellie. It's a hundred years since the first recorded women's AFL match. Yeah, that. It is a long time, isn't it? It's uh, good to see how far women's footy has come in that amount of years. It's very exciting. It is, it is. 100 years. 100 years. I, I didn't realise women have been playing that long, but they have. Um, do you know the very beginnings of it? Have you been told the history? <laughs> uh, I've probably heard a little bit about it, but don't know too much. Well, tell us what you know. Um, but I guess the, it was probably not many games played back then. No. Been maybe a couple of games. Maybe the boys so, were so. off at war and the women started playing, you know, because this is glippily 100 yep. years right now. Yep. So the men went off to war, so the women played footy. Maybe. I know, <laughs> I'm just guessing. <laughs> Could have worked like that. Could have it worked is, like that. I reckon it, it's a chance to celebrate how far the game has come. I mean, women's football, it's its the fastest growing part of the game. There's, I think there's close to 195,000 girls you know, and women now playing Australian football. Especially through school, you know. Yeah. Um, they have programs where when you're a, a six-year-old at school, well, the girls play the same sport as the boys do. Yeah, that's it. So it's good. I, I've been through a few of the school programs myself. So, yeah, it's definitely good to see that it's at a school level as well as club level outside of school. And I spoke with Dorothy Hisgrove, the AFL General Manager of People, Customer and Community a couple of days ago and she was quite excited and, and very excited about the two matches uh, later this year but um, they've spent a lot of time investing directly into female footy club development this year. I think they've, I think Dorothy said they had 150 new junior and youth teams across the country. and That's a lot. As well as providing access to coaching courses and, and high performance mentoring as well to um, for the coaches of the uh, the women's teams. Two matches this year for the Melbourne and uh, Bulldogs side. L- last couple of years has only been the one match. It's kind of a test series, you see. It sounds like it, doesn't it? It's uh, good to have the two games then on two different venues, I guess. So yes. Gives it gives more of an opportunity. That's right, the opportunity. And then when you're not playing for for Melbourne and you're doing your Victorian Women's Football League, how often are your games? Every week? For them? Yeah, every Sunday, uh, except for this Both. Sunday, I guess. So mm-hmm. um, for club footy, yeah, we... Um, yeah, play every Sunday pretty much mm-hmm. throughout the Except day. for those two I, I, games. I read someone yeah, that... They're, they're kind of like State of Origin, even though it's much. Melbourne and Bulldogs kind of thing. Yeah, I something read, like that. I read somewhere, Ellie, that there was nine new clubs that joined the VWFL this year. Ah, uh, yeah. So clubs, I guess, all over the, the state have joined up a couple in my local area. So which is good to see that, you know, some girls who I've, you know, gone to school with, I guess, have started to play footy at a, a local club. That's good. You, you, you play for Melbourne Uni, but where do you live? What's your local area? Just uh, suburb, en- just suburb. Endeavour Hills. Endeavour Hills. So out in the southeast, and yep. there's a, it's a growing area out there for women's football.
involved? Oh, definitely. I, I think it's been a big start for women's football in general because it's where the first youth girls competition um, started up. Mm-hmm. And I guess in the past couple of years, the, the competitions, I guess, dropped down a bit in a senior level perspective. So it's good to see a couple more clubs get joined up in that area and hopefully a few more can join, I guess, the Premier League and be the top dogs of the competition. <laughs> and, you, and you're playing with the, the Melbourne women's side for a 30 running, but you, you're not a D supporter in the AFL. I've been told that you're a, you're a mad Saints fan. I am a Saints fan. It is a bit tough. Is that because they were based out at Casey? No. No? Just in your blood? Who's it's your favourite player at the Saints? Oh, you probably can't go past Rue. Um, but you I do like um, Maverick Weller at the moment. Ah, um, the former son? Yeah, he's a he's a good, tough player. So I like that. So <laughs> it's really good. It's good to have some, some tough players in our team. Well, they need to well, because they can't win a game. They had a good win <laughs> over Gold Coast thing. in round two. <laughs> oh, that's true. They've won one. Uh, but that was Gold Coast. Gold Coast is zipping three at the moment. Well, they're Gary Abletless. Well, that's it. Not yeah. for the first two matches, only for the third match. Well, they're not going very well. No. Nah. Rodney Ede could be on thin ice, Sharon. Who knows? <laughs> I think I, I thought I thought the Saints were okay against Collingwood in the first half last week. Yeah, the first five Overrun. minutes of first the game minutes, was, uh, was lovely. Kicked the first few goals. Yeah, I was sitting there with mum and dad, and dad's a Collingwood supporter, so I was definitely oh. uh, giving it to him a little oh, bit so in the first five minutes. It's yeah. mum Saints? Mum is Oh, you Gilda. got it from her. I okay. did. I did. There you go. Oh, that's good. Well, I'd rather be a Saints supporter than a Pies supporter. Yes, definitely. I agree. <laughs> I agree with that one. Very good. <laughs> Joy. You're listening to Joy 94.9 and this is a little pot of joy with Alice and Andrea. And up next we have a vignette from the Joy Network and it's all about uh, HIV and living with the virus. Joy 94.9, we're partner with Living Positive Victoria and got a series of wonderful little stories. Mm, And you can head to Melbourne City Square at 6pm on Sunday, May 17th for the International AIDS Candlelight Memorial event in partnership with Living Positive Victoria and the Victorian AIDS Candle made possible with the support of Joy 94.9. You can listen to the entire series of little vignettes off the Joy website. So go to www.joy.org.au. You're listening to A Little Pot of Joy, the podcast program. Joy 94.9, Living Positive Victoria and the Victorian AIDS Council present the stories of our community, HIV AIDS in 2015. My name is Alison Campbell. I'm from the north of Ireland, but it's my great joy to live in Melbourne now. I'll spend International AIDS Candlelight Memorial 2015 in City Square, Melbourne, in the company of people who take time to remember those who have died from AIDS-related illnesses and to think about what it is we need to do now about ongoing issues of living with HIV. My greatest discovery from the International AIDS Conference in Melbourne last year is that many of the general public don't think that there are women who are HIV positive. There are women who are HIV positive. You may even know one, but she may not feel able to tell you. She may not feel able to tell you because, while medical treatment has improved, the treatment of people living with HIV is still marked by fear and stigma. Ending this is the task ahead for us all. My name is Charlie Tridway, and I'm a 31-year-old gay male living with HIV in New Zealand. I had the honour of this year being asked to speak at the Canberra Candlelight Memorial, but unfortunately, due to travel logistics, I had to decline. So this year, for me, will be all about reflection, both for the people lost and the people that have paved the road for the easier HIV journey I have today. In my opinion, the number one issue we face as HIV-positive people in a first-world country is the stigma, the fact that in the 
this day and age, ignorance and misconceptions around HIV make it hard to live with transparency and without judgment is the hardest part of being positive for me. My message is pretty simple. I just want everyone to get informed and be open to having a frank discussion about HIV. I think it's the first and most important step to combating stigma. This is Edwin Bernard. I'm the coordinator of the HIV Justice Network, which raises awareness and fights unfair laws that criminalize people living with HIV. I live in Brighton on England's south coast in a gay-friendly neighborhood known as Kemptown, where I live openly with HIV. I recently spent time in your beautiful city of Melbourne for AIDS 2014, where we debuted the world's first ever HIV Justice Film Festival, shining a spotlight on the outrageous, unjust laws that make the epidemic worse and keep HIV stigma alive. Here in Brighton, we have an AIDS candlelight vigil every year, held at our permanent AIDS memorial in Kemptown. Throughout the AIDS epidemic, candles have been used as symbols of hope, to illuminate our way, but also to memorialize the dead. They help focus our minds on the fact that HIV is still affecting our community and remind us of what and who we have lost. Now around the world, there are many countries where you dare not attend an event like the International AIDS Candlelight Memorial for fear of stigma, violence, or punitive action by police and authorities. So Melbourne, get out into City Square and raise a candle, not just for all those we've lost, but for all those still fighting for their human rights and dignity around the world. The stories of our community, HIV AIDS in 2015. Hello, my name is Jessica Whitford from the International Community of Women Living with HIV, and I live in Toronto, Canada. I'm grateful to have the love and support to be open about my HIV status. Last year, I was fortunate enough to read with my positive sister, Teresia Nojoki Otiano from Kenya, at the Candlelight Vigil in Montreal during the 2014 International AIDS Conference. We burn candles to remember our loved ones who are no longer with us and those who are still having to bear the burden of HIV. Globally, it is hard to say what the biggest issue is because because they are also big. Criminalization of HIV and people in general, such as sex workers, people who use drugs, as well as the LGBTQ community, stunt us to move forward together. Also, let's really deal with that pesky patriarchy thing. It's really no good for anyone. So my special message for you uh, for the candlelight vigil is, if you think that you don't know someone with HIV, it's probably untrue. It's more likely that you've just created an unsafe space for anyone to tell you. You might want to reconsider your actions in this world and how to be kinder to those around you so they can feel safe and that you won't stigmatize them. My name is Chris Lamont. I'm African-Australian working as a physician in Melbourne, Australia. I work in infectious diseases and refugee health. I'm also involved with the community response to HIV through the Australian Federation of AIDS Organisations African Reference Group. On 17th of May, I'll be lighting a candle for my friends and comrades living with HIV who have fought not just for their own lives, but for the health, well-being and dignity of us all. I will think particularly of those African-Australian men and women who must live lives of secrecy because of the fear, hostility or sheer indifference of those around them. Australia is a rich country and we are fortunate to have a world-class health system with ready access to clinicians, medications, information and community support for most people living with HIV. However, some people are left out. Some visitors, migrants, refugees and asylum seekers run afoul of laws and policies that make it hard or impossible to access the best treatment and support. These barriers are underpinned by stigma and discrimination. HIV provides us with an opportunity for moral evolution to celebrate all of humanity and recognise the other in ourselves. 
to transcend xenophobia, racism, homophobia, and an island mentality that persists even in this era of global travel. To accept that all of us are living with HIV, not just those who have a diagnosis, and to ensure that no one is left out and no one is left behind. Joy 94.9, Living Positive Victoria and the Victorian AIDS Council present the stories of our community, HIV AIDS in 2015. Kia ora, my name is Marama Pala and I live in South Waikato, New Zealand. I've been openly living with HIV since 1993. I am a global advocate for Indigenous people and Indigenous women living with HIV and impacted by HIV. Every year there are multiple international candlelight memorials being held across New Zealand and of which I frequently support the one held in Hamilton, Waikato, where lots of our community supporters attend. However, this year I plan to be part of the candlelight memorial been held in Nepal, which is new and exciting. And on a personal note, we spend this time remembering my husband's first wife and two children whom died of AIDS. And we also spend time remembering many of our personal friends and whānau family whom have perished. The issues for Indigenous peoples living with HIV globally, regionally and nationally resonates a theme of human rights violations and gender inequalities. Racism, stigma and discrimination are present before HIV and then HIV creates another entirely new set of those issues. For Melbourne, I ask that you learn your history, remember the people of the land and support those living with and impacted by HIV and AIDS. Indigenous people are still dying because of continued stigma and discrimination. My name is Sharon Lewin and I'm an infectious diseases physician and basic researcher working on finding a cure for HIV. I'm the director of the Peter Doherty Institute for Infection and Immunity in Melbourne, Australia and was a local co-chair for AIDS 2014 held in Melbourne last year. Despite the enormous advances in the treatment and prevention of HIV, there remains a tremendous amount of work to be done to see an end to stigma, to ensure universal access to treatment and to ultimately find a cure for the 33 million people living with HIV. As Australians, we have made some tremendous contributions to the fight against HIV, but much work remains to be done. And this is a time to remind ourselves and to remind our community that this can only be done in partnership and with an ongoing commitment to see the end of HIV. Hello, Sophie J. Warden here, and I live in Auckland, New Zealand. I've been blessed to experience living with HIV. Living to see this day where I'm able to share my experiences. Each year, AIDS International Memorial Day is held at St. Matthew's Church here in Auckland. This year, I'm holding a private memorial with friends and family on Eden Summit. I believe that the few here who attempt to live openly with HIV are unable to due to a lack of support, education, and inclusion for all cultures to share. The aging HIV-positive community needs support in order to have peace in their golden age. Please go to the International Candlelight Memorial in your city to help raise awareness about people who are aging with HIV in order to highlight safe sex and never to forget those who lost lives. Thank you. My name is Tomasz Brzecki and I live in Budapest, Hungary. I work as a peer helper, activist and researcher in social sciences. I have been living with HIV for 12 years. Hungary is a low prevalence country as far as HIV is concerned, a small and diverse community. So far, we held a candlelight memorial in the garden of the single HIV clinic in the country, but not this year. We have invited people living with HIV, friends and supporters to hold a candlelight vigil in front of the magnificent parliament building in Budapest. This is ever more important as the biggest problem of people 
living with HIV in Hungary is the complete lack of any attention, prevention and information activity by the government. Stigma and discrimination make our work even more difficult. You might not know, but the HIV epidemic is currently rampant in my region, Central and Eastern Europe. We need your support. We need everybody's support to tackle this burning problem. We need to put Europe back on the map and we need your help. The stories of our community, HIV AIDS in 2015. Head to Melbourne's City Square at 5pm Sunday, May 17 for the International AIDS Candlelight Memorial Event. In partnership with Living Positive Victoria and the Victorian AIDS Council. Made possible with the support of Joy 94.9. You're listening to a little pot of joy with Andrea and Alice. And we've come to the end of another evening and you know what an evening. There's some amazing stories that we've just had from the different people that expressed how it is to live with the HIV. And not doing anything next Sunday night, the 17th, head on down to Melbourne City Square at 6pm and take part of the International AIDS Candlelight Memorial event. It's a free event and there's going to be quite a few different attractions there. Mm, I'm definitely going to be there. As you said, a lot of moving stories and as we heard, it's still an issue that affects our whole community. And it's something that's just, it isn't something that affects the LGBTI community. It's everybody. When we were listening to Max about the stories from all the people that are involved in the fly-in, fly-out schemes with the mining industry, how they're affected and how it's actually stretches back so far into the community and all the people coming down from the north and crossing the Torres Straits, how they're affected. And it's just something that is such a huge cost to the community. It doesn't matter how you look at it. And you were talking about your friend who's a researcher in looking for an AIDS vaccine. That's right. I have a friend who's currently working on her PhD in finding an HIV vaccine. And it's incredibly interesting just how much effort and time across the world is going into finding that vaccine. It's really a mobilising issue. And there's definitely a lack of funding in some of those areas. And you know, when you really weigh it all up, how much does it really cost the community and just trying to sweep it under the carpet as opposed to putting money into trying to do the research. That's right. It just uh, it needs to be a priority because it's affecting more and more people. And how have you found podcasting? It's so exciting. I'm really enjoying it, Andrea. Thank you for showing me the ropes earlier. Oh, you're welcome. And you've been an absolutely wonderful co-host. Oh, thank you for having me on the show again. It's so much fun. You're on Joy 94.9 and this has been A Little Pot of Joy. <laughs> You've been listening to A Little Pot of Joy, the podcast program. See joy.org.au and click on our podcast link to subscribe to your favourite podcasts free. Thanks for listening to another Joy podcast brought to you by Australia's LGBTQIA plus community media organisation, Joy. Help us keep Joy on air. Head to joy.org.au. Joy, a diverse sound for a diverse community.